Well, I hope you're ready for some drama and some contrast, because when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, especially the closer to the end we get, it is drama like no one has ever seen. Ultimate drama, and as we see this ultimate drama of redemption unfolding, it is contrast after contrast. I feel like I'm going to get whiplash from the contrasts. We see the very best of men shown to be utterly incapable of helping themselves spiritually. And by way of contrast, we see the Lord Jesus being the one and only one who is worthy of trust when it comes to salvation. Contrast, another kind of contrast we see with Jesus is we see that human beings have all sorts of plans, even good plans, sometimes bad plans. And ultimately, only God's good and sovereign plan will prevail. And it's contrast after contrast after contrast. I hope you're ready to go from one side to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other with me. Uh, I've been doing it all week, and I'm going to invite you to join me, which means we're going to look at the 26th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. So the gospel of Jesus Christ According to Matthew, we're looking at the 26th chapter. We're going to look at verse 31 and following today. But the closer Jesus gets, it's a 28 chapter book. So we know how it ends, but the closer it gets to the ending, the more the, the, the dramatic it seems to be and escalated it is. And we go from one contrast to another, to another, to another, to another. And hopefully what we'll leave with is this. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is sovereign, in control, and should be trusted. And he's going to expose all other sorts of things that ought not be trusted in, all other sorts of people ought not, we ought not be trusting in, including ourselves. So, contrast will be remarkable. We're going to look at verses 31 to 56. We'll look at different locations, but we don't really need an outline. I don't think it would just get in the way. But before we get to verse 31, maybe a word or two about the setting. And the setting is revealed to us in verse 30 because it says they went out to the Mount of Olives. So if Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, it means they're in Jerusalem during Passover is the timing we learned about last time. Mount of Olives would be to the east of the temple. And I, we already see a contrast when it comes to location. Uh, so before we get to verse 31, be patient with me if you would. If they go up on the Mount of Olives, I mean, there's one, there's one reason why I would go up on the Mount of Olives. There's only ever been one reason why I would go up on the Mount of Olives. And that is when you go up on the Mount of Olives, you've got a great view of the city. In particular, you have a great view of one thing, and that's the temple. What a view. If he's up on the Mount of Olives with the disciples, he can see the temple and all of its grandeur and all of its glory. And I think there's already a great contrast if they're on the Mount of Olives because they're looking at the Old Covenant temple. And just last week, and so let's not read it with a week break. Let's, let's pretend like we just finished reading the Passover meal, the supper, and then he takes the Passover meal and he says, actually, this ultimately is about me now. It's a new covenant supper, 
bread symbolizing my body, wine symbolizing my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So before we even get to our verse, we're just at location. I'm seeing a contrast because there they are able to look at the old covenant temple. And if he just did Lord's Supper and he did, New covenant in my blood, Jesus says. He's the new covenant temple. He's talked about it elsewhere. Where do you go to uniquely and specially meet with God? You go to the temple. And remember chapter 20. See, I'm not just reading into this. Remember chapter 23, 24, 25. That temple's going to be destroyed. He's giving them a good look by way of contrast and comparison. Well, we probably should get to our text, don't you think? If I just had more time. That's how I think about studying too. If I just had more time to let it kind of marinate and more time to process and more time to put things together, you start seeing connections all over the place. Well, maybe someday I'll be ready to preach Matthew. (laughs) That's how I think. This is my second time through in my life going through Matthew and I'm thinking I might be close to ready because you just see association after association after association and you think, oh, okay. Well, bear with me. Let's go ahead and keep moving now to our text, okay? Verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, that them being the disciples, you will all... Maybe let's misread it for a second for the sake of effect. Let's pretend like he says something else. You will all be blessed, happy, and famous, and people will build cathedrals after you. But he doesn't say that, right? Then, And I wanted you to read it the wrong way because I think it's meant to be read as a downer because it is a downer. It's not like what we just said. You will all fall away because of me this night. It's a shot to the heart. It's not what they would be expecting. You know what you can count on? You can count on all of you 12 disciples falling away and it's going to happen this very night. This is is terrible. You will all, the only Greek word I'll use today because it sounds like an English word, you will all scandalizo this very night. You will all scandalizo this very night. Sounds like our word for scandal, right? It's going to be a scandal. And it's actually not too far away from the reality. Literally, the word that he uses, you'll fall away, is for literally falling down. But it's, I don't think it's ever used in in the New Testament that way. Outside of the New Testament, it is. If somebody trips and they fall down, they scandalizoed. Okay? But it's used figuratively in the New Testament for sin. If you cause someone to stumble, It's not talking about literal stumbling. It's talking about sinning. So even in our modern American culture, if some celebrity, big personality does some kind of societal sin, we say they've fallen, right? They've fallen and now because of their societal sin and there's a scandal. Well, that's the same kind of idea. He says to the disciples, you're going to fall down. But he doesn't mean literally you're going to fall down. But each of you, all of you, you're going to fall down. You're going to sin. And we will see in our passage, the sin he talks about is you will, each of you, 
reject me. You will leave me. You will, each of you, all of you, you will all deny me and that's sinful. And I want to invite you to think about why that would be sinful. It would be sinful for that to happen, for them to scandalizo him, for them to fall away. It would be sinful for that to happen because of who he is. And he says, because of me. Well, because he's going to be, uh, betray- he's going to be uh, captured and, and they're not going to stand up for him. That could be part of it. Part of it is because this is part of the unfolding plan. Jesus is going to tie it to prophecy. This is going to happen to you. Because of what's going to happen to me, according to prophecy, this is how it has to unfold. Sovereign plan and purpose. A lot of other people have a lot of other plan, other, it's hard to talk this fast, have a lot of other plans and purposes. But I'm going to tell you how it is going to go down. He's forcing them not to sin, but to see that they are not going to be faithful. They're not going to remain loyal. He and he alone is going to be faithful and loyal. How about if we keep reading for the sake of time? Verse 31 says, For for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. So now he's quoting Zechariah 13, Messianic prophecy. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That sounds bad and it is bad, but God is using bad people to accomplish good purposes, ultimately redemptive purposes. But Jesus is letting them know he knows what's going to happen. It's going to happen according to plan and purpose. And you all are going to betray me. You're all going to sin. You're all going to do what's scandalous is what's about to happen. Just by way of a little bit of a preview This whole thing is driving the 12, and I hope driving us, to see that you shouldn't trust even in the best of people. Whether that's you or someone else, they're all going to fall. The greatest of individuals, they're all going to crash and burn, which is actually important lest we think we should put our trust in Peter, lest we think we should put our trust in John, lest we think we should put our trust in Pat, self, or someone else. So this is bad what's happening here, but God is going to use the bad for good so that we all see there's actually one who will be left standing, one who will be faithful, and his name is Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we look at all this back and forth, back and forth. So you're all going to scandalizo, You're all going to fall away. You're all going to sin against me, even because of me, according to prophetic plan. But notice the hopefulness in verse 32. Here's the good, positive confidence. But after I am raised up, notice Jesus doesn't flinch. This, this is going to, it's going to be bad. He's been prophesying his crucifixion. But after I'm raised up, let me tell you the future before it happens. I will go before you to Galilee. So it's not going to, it's, it's going to end badly, but it's not going to end finally. And we're going to see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, that very thing. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I don't want to read too much into it, but I do like it that the res, they're going to all deny him and leave him. The scandal thing is going to happen. But after I'm raised up, go and call my brothers. 
we're in the same spiritual family. Even the very ones who committed the gravest sin against me. Good to see, good to pay attention to things like that. Little details. There's hope even for these bad actors and they're bad actors. Not just Judas. Okay, now for some contrast. How about verse 33? Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And that same contrast comes up again and again in our passage. Though they all, Jesus says, it's going to happen to all of them. Though they all, not me, I, I never will. Never, ever, ever will I do it, Jesus. And I think at this point in time, we should give Peter a break before we throw him under the bus. Okay? Before, oh, just like that, Peter, you know. Think about why it would be right for Peter to think like this. Why would it be right for Peter to say, never in a million years, Jesus, I'm going to be faithful and loyal even if nobody else is faithful and loyal. Why, why might we be prone to be sympathetic to Peter acting and thinking like that? Well, I think we have multiple reasons and you probably have more than I can even think of. But think in terms of the fact that Peter was chosen by Jesus. He's been with Jesus now for quite some time. He's observed Jesus in all, observed Jesus in all sorts of settings. And Jesus has showed him unique and special love. He's one, one who's close to him. He's one, how about this? He's one of the twelve. That, that, that gives you a sense. Not only that, think of who Jesus is. By now, Peter has come to believe, maybe not everything perfectly about Jesus, but he's come to see him do amazing things for people. He's come to see, to experience amazing things for himself. And he's come to believe upon Jesus rightfully, at least in a lot of ways. And he's convinced he's the one. How about this? And he's witnessed countless other large numbers of disciples leave because of pressure. Think John chapter 6. In other words, Peter has been persevering. Peter, Peter's kept following Jesus even when others haven't. So he has a track record. I'm not going to leave you. Oh, and then think about Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus says, you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. You are a unique and special disciple. In light of Ephesians chapter 2, the Lord builds the church on the apostles and the prophets. So Peter's thinking, I'm not going to leave. I'm the rock. Right? Well, he probably was, he probably didn't have the theme song in his head, but <laughs> in all seriousness, he is special. Without, you can't get around Matthew 16 without thinking he's special. So I, the special one of all people, I got your back. I'm faithful. I'm loyal. And I think we should be reading it that way. And yet, tragically, we should make sure we see Jesus says, you will all, and Peter says, I will never. Contrast. Verse 34 says, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night 
before the rooster crows, you will. Notice the contrast. You will. He says, I will never. Jesus says, you will deny me three times. So it's not like it was a slip up. And, and, you know, but I, I, I did or said the wrong thing, but Jesus, you know my heart. Yeah, I know your heart three times. You, you made it clear by your actions or you, you will make it clear. Verse 35 says, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But notice the contrast. You will contrasted with I will not. It reminds me of what we talked about last week with the Israelites when they hear the law of Moses and they hear of God's strict requirements and they say, we will do it. We are good people. We are loyal people. You can count on us. And here it's elevated. Jesus himself is saying, you're not. And they're saying, oh, yes, we are. If they lived in the 1990s in Christian pop culture, they'd be saying, they'd be singing, find us faithful. All who come behind us will find us faithful. We're committed to Jesus. And Jesus says, no one who comes behind you will find you faithful. Because there's only one person who will be left standing who's faithful. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. So my, this might seem harsh, but it's, it's good harsh. It's just, just tearing down false fortresses, if you will, of self-confidence. You can't trust even the best of people. And these, I would suggest to you, are the best of people, representation. It's important that we see this from this perspective, I think, because when we read it in its greater context, and if, if you're thinking, is this the point in the sermon when Pastor Pat mentions chapter 1, verse 21? You're thinking right. It's that point in the service. Because I try to do it every time in Matthew. So we read it in light of the big picture. Matthew one twenty one. Name him Jesus because he... He and he alone is the idea. He will save his people from their sins. Their scandalizoing. Their sins. So you, it's just, a, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a setup, but this, this whole thing is well directed and unfolding according to plan and purpose. Not even these guys who have cathedrals named after them of all things. Not even these guys are going to be faithful. Only one is going to be faithful. And it's so important that we see it. I'm so grateful for this, I hate to say it, but this crashing and burning because it helps me. It really helps me. We struggle even today in the 21st century with thinking somehow faith, which means rest, trust, confide in, means faithfulness. And it doesn't. When you Have faith in Jesus. You're trusting in Him to do the work for you. You're resting in Him. He does all of the work. He gives the rest. Okay? Faithfulness is when we 
do and can and perform and maybe if we are faithful enough. And the reality is these guys all, Jesus says, will leave. And so he and he alone is the faithful one. So our faith should be in him and in him alone. It's really critical and it's really important. It is good to be faithful. Don't get me wrong. But even these guys weren't because they needed to be saved from their sins. And so if they weren't, I know you're not. And you can know I'm not. And now we can rest in Christ whose work is finished on our behalf, the Savior. And then we do want to try to be faithful knowing all along that our acceptance before God doesn't depend upon it. He's going to be raised and he's going to meet these failures, right? In Galilee, and they're his brothers. He accepts them. But it's because of what he does. Makes all the difference in the world. Okay, you all look like you need a break. Not really. I need a break. So maybe you've seen um, surveys come through on social media uh, if you're not on so- social media, thank you for being godly. <laughs> but I, I've seen this come up, I, I don't know, lots and lots of times. And the survey comes through, and it's, how, how, should, how should we describe ourselves? Do you, do, how, do you, how do you identify spiritually? Christian, follower of Jesus, and maybe there's some other option. But oftentimes it's those two. So do you want to say I'm a Christian in the 21st century or do you want to say I'm a follower of Jesus? Some of you are like, yeah, I do. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Some of you are saying other and we're concerned about you. (laughs) I kid. Well, it's just fascinating to watch the back and forth. Oftentimes, not always, it's people don't want to say they're a Christian because they want to say they're a follower of Jesus. And I get it, but I think we need to give a little bit of pushback and talk about why, because sometimes this always and never thing gets us in trouble. So let's think about this. I want to call myself a Christian because at least three times in the Bible, people who have trusted in Christ are called Christians. Twice in the book of Acts, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, and once in First Peter. So those who trust in Christ are, are, are Christians. They're Messiahans. It's a good designation. I like it. I'm in. Now, maybe I don't like it so much, though, sometimes because in our culture, Christian just means you're an American. Well, I don't like that. Or Christian just means you're not something else. Well, I don't like that either because because I'm not just a cultural Christian. I'm one who really believes in Jesus. So so maybe I'm going to opt for uh, box B uh, that says follower of Jesus because I am a follower of Jesus. And at least then I'm, I'm saying it a different way to kind of, you know, hands on the chalkboard, um, fingernails on the chalkboard to get people's attention. I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. But here's why I bring it up. Just be a little careful. Follower of Jesus could imply that you're faithful. And as long as you're a good enough follower of Jesus, you know, like the 12. Wink, wink. God will accept you. We should be good followers of Jesus. The 12 should have been good followers of Jesus. And they all scandalizoed. 
None of them were good followers of Jesus. So Jesus had to save them from their sins. So let's just play both and and at least think it through. Um, so I might check the box other. I don't know what box I check. I just get frustrated and move on. But let's think through these things. Both, both, both should be true. And now that you are united to Christ by faith, which makes you a Christian, you want to follow Jesus as a result. Absolutely. And these 12, well, 11, will follow Jesus as a result afterward, now once they are his brothers in a spiritual sense. Is that helpful or not? Should I repeat it third service? Or oh, we don't have a third service, so I won't do a third service. Okay. I like thinking through always and never and saying, actually, I could argue either way depending on who I was talking to because both actually have biblical grounds. Don't, in other words, don't, I heard this from a theologian I respect a whole lot one time. Don't force me to make a false choice. Let me explain myself. Hope that's helpful for you. I paid a lot of money to take a class from that person. <laughs> awesome. More contrast coming up. More contrast coming up. The best of times and the worst of times. Dickens wasn't the first one to come up with that idea. Here we go. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. So we're still Mount of Olives, maybe down now, getting toward the valley. That's true, but still over there on that side of the temple. So Gethsemane, I'm going to put my finger there just for a second. Based upon John's gospel account, it's a familiar place to the disciples. It's where Judas would have known they likely would have been. It's not secretive. Um, maybe one of them owned it or a friend owned it. It seemed to be a place where they'd been before. Okay, So called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be John and James, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And I just read it deliberately because I didn't want to try to dramatize it because I know how terribly I would fail. What must he have sounded like? Hard to even imagine. The greatest actor on planet Earth would not be able to replicate the severity and sobriety and the awfulness of what that must have sounded like, given what it means. At the very core of my being, there's nothing surfacy about this. Surely that's what he means by my soul, the very in, inside of me. You don't get more authentic. You don't get more sincere. This is what makes me very sorrowful, even to death. And at least on two levels, we all should consider what's happening. Let's consider the first level of sorrowfulness. And let's consider the fact that 
just on a, on a mere intellectual level, what's about to happen is horrific. The most tragic event ever in human history to ever take place. It should make anyone with a sane mind sorrowful. Think about the facts. The perfect image bearer tried and tested, unique from the first Adam, tried and tested, successful, perfectly righteous, every test passed, the perfect image bearer who's tried and tested and who's altogether righteous, who has always loved neighbor, who's always loved God in every way necessary, here he is on display before the watching world. For him to be betrayed by his best friends is utter tragedy, unthinkable. The ones who knew him best are going to betray him, who witnessed and saw the whole thing are going to betray him and leave him. This would make anyone who has a brain and a heart sorrowful. And then it's him who knows all things and is, has perfect everything. And so he's sorrowful in a way that no one has ever been sorrowful because of who he is and what he understands the human race to be. Oh, now let's ramp it up. It's going to be he, the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, as the New Testament says, the righteous, the perfect law obeyer. He knows what's about to happen. This is happening to death, even as our text says. Because he's going to not only be betrayed, he's not only going to be sinned against by his disciples, he's going to be tried, found guilty, though he's innocent, the just for the unjust, he's going to go to the cross and be crucified. Sorrowful, like no one has ever been sorrowful, and anyone, again, I would suggest to you, in their right mind, and he's in his perfect mind, no one has ever been sorrowful like this. To, to, to think about Jesus who knows everything that one would ever need to know about the righteousness of God and the justice of God, and therefore, as the representative of sinful people, unrighteous people, he knows what's going to happen. And I guess I could try to go on and on trying to, to tease out the significance of what's happening. He, he, he knows who God is. He knows he's the innocent, spotless, righteous one deserving of none of the wrath, and he knows about the human race and just how bad they are because even the best of the best, the 12, are spiritual flunkies. So you think, I know I still don't get it. I know I still can't really get a feel for this, but but I, I at least can think about this and, and rationally say, that that, that must have been... Devastating, awful, sorrowful, he says, even to death. Wow, isn't it interesting to think that last time we were together, we were looking at the verses before this, and it ends on such a great, awesome note. My body, my blood, 
elsewhere deliberately called the new covenant in my blood. What all of human history has been waiting for. Even the old covenant talks about a new covenant. And it's, it's him. It's good. It's great. Contrast in the drama. Sorrowful to the point of death. Because that can't happen without this happening. I like it that the sureness of it happening is sure. So much so that he celebrates the Lord's Supper beforehand. Not after. In control. Okay. Then he says in verse 38, halfway through the verse, at the end there, he says to the disciples, is that where we are? I think it is. Yes. At the end of verse 38, he says to the disciples, remain here, the ones who are with him, remain here and watch with me. So later he's going to ask them to pray for certain things that would be appropriate for them to pray for. But at this point in time, given who he is, he and he alone needs to do the praying. And so I'm going to go and pray, but here's what he's going to ask of them. Think about this. He's going to say, I want you to watch while I pray. Think bar low. All I need you to do as my friends, my companions, as the people I've invested in so specifically, the closest ones in my whole life, my best friends, could you just be with me, we might say? Could you just show me your friendship by just being there for me? It's not asking a lot at all. And I know we're meant to read it that way. Remain here, watch with me. And those guys are the ones, you know, right? No matter what, we're here. They just made some grandiose claims. Oh, you just want us to watch? We got your back, Jesus. 39 says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I'm going to speculate for a second. What is, what is it like to have perfect awareness, perfect self-control, and to go to pray and fall on your face? Just interesting to think about. He's in great anguish because of what he's about to do, because of what he knows he's about to do. I won't try to imitate and sound like Jesus because I wouldn't. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If you've read the Bible very much, you'll know. If you haven't read the Bible much, you'll know here in about a few seconds. Cup symbolizes lots of different things at at different times. But one thing it does symbolize in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a cup that holds symbolically, not literally, a cup that holds God's fury, God's wrath. 
It's used, for example, in Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and then if you want to listen to Revelation 16. God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so there's already a precedent for, for sometimes it can hold something good, but sometimes it can hold something bad and be calamitous. It's poured out. So there, Jesus says, no doubt, symbolically there, if it be possible, what's going to happen is so horrific because the people I will give my life for are so terrible, though he loved us, and your righteous fury is so devastating, I don't want to do this. Because no one... And he is in his right mind. Like nobody's been in his right mind. No one would want to experience such a thing. Not to mention the fact he's the spotless one who doesn't deserve it. It's kind of fascinating to think of cups here for a second. And again, I might be wrong in reading too much into this. Buyer beware. But we had the, the cup of the new covenant, symbolic of his blood. And him being the spotless lamb. And the only, the, the only way that's going to happen and be a reality is if he drinks the cup of God's wrath. A lot of symbolism here as to what he will represent, what he will experience. Signs and symbols happening all over the place. Now we know that Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified. We know that he said, you don't take my life, I lay my life down for the sheep. We know that he, he just talked about being raised and meeting them in Galilee. And so I want to remind you, all that's there, not just in far context in other books of the Bible, it's in our text. He just got done talking about resurrection. No matter what, he's going to the cross and he knows it all along. And he's going to be resurrected. He knows it all along. He's not been wrong yet. All along. But see, we do need to see that the severity is not diminished. And so he says the words that he says. Rightfully so. If it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows that it's not possible. He knows that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He knows the, that he's the way and the truth and the life. He knows all of these things. But he, what he's about to do is the most devastating thing that could ever be done. In one sense, the most unthinkable thing that could be done. How about we move on to verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. All he has to do, asked them to do is watch. He found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Not a surprise to Jesus either, by the way. P Jesus didn't need Peter to watch, but he needed Peter to understand that he's not faithful. And I would apply that and step over to you and say, Jesus didn't need Peter to watch, but he needed Peter to understand that Peter's not faithful and it's good for us to see that the guy who is the rock is not faithful. So don't put your trust in yourself and don't put your trust in important church people like Peter. 
Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. That would be a good verse for him to tuck away for later, later in life. When you want to do the right thing, Peter, and it seems like you want to do the right thing, but you can't do the right thing on your own given your nature, who you are, among other things. How about verse 42? Again for the second time. He went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he knows that. Based upon everything we've read in our gospel account, he knows that. Verse 43 says, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. I don't know about you, but I, as I was studying this and thinking this through, the whole sleeping thing, and he and he alone is the one, does it on his own, I, couldn't, I thought about a lot of things, but I thought of the Abrahamic covenant. I thought of Genesis 15, when God makes the great and splendid promises to Abraham, to Abram, excuse me, to Abram. And then he has a, Abram fall asleep, and God swears the covenant oath himself. The faithful God will have this happen. The faithful God is the one who swears. And it's going to happen because if it were up to Abram, it actually wouldn't happen. And I don't think I'm reading too much into it in light of the fact that in Galatians chapter 3, Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled because of Jesus and what he does. He is the seed, Galatians 3, 15 to 18. Verse 45 then says of our text, then he came to the, and then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest. Later on, see the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now I'm going to read that again for effect because he, wake up. You know, if this were a drama you were going to watch reenacted, if this were a film you were going to see, you would want to stand in line to get the best seats or wait to get the best seats online or however you secure them. You're going to see something that is the most devastating, horrific. How about the greatest tragedy of all tragedies? And you say, why are you getting so animated about the greatest tragedy of all tragedies? When he says, what he says at the end of verse 45, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's all kinds of wrong. That's all sorts of wrong. I wish, I wish, you know, word or whatever document uh, thing I'm using, I, I wish it had something, you know, not the red line under or the blue line under or something, but, but a theological line. Because black, I don't know what color it could be, but anyway, you get the idea. It's all sorts of wrong because, and I'm a broken record here, I know, but Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel 7. If he's the Son of Man, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the King, he's the provider, he's also, if you're a Messiah, he's also, here's what I want you to notice, the judge. 
the son of man, the judge, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. By definition, the New Testament tells us sinners are those who commit lawlessness. So sinners are supposed to be judged by the son of man who is the judge, if he's the Messiah. And notice that it's perverse and backward. The judge is going to be judged by those who should be judged. This is all kinds of wrong. And again, we probably don't read it the way we should read it, and we don't appreciate it, and so I'm overly dramatizing it, so hopefully you get it. This is not the time to sleep. The greatest tragedy ever, the unthinkable thing, is about ready to happen. Now, we know, based upon other things, because God is not only good, He's also powerful, and He's also sovereign, that this is actually the drama of redemption. This this actually is going to work out for good because he, the sinless one, is going to be the substitute and he's going to be raised from the dead and all of those good things. But for now, I want you to go, oh boy. You know how, you know, traffic accidents and, and everybody stops and has to look and you get home a half hour later because we're all so interested in tragedies? Even if you're perfectly sanctified, you should be interested in this tragedy. What on earth is about to happen? That is wrong, however you look at it. And God's going to use it for redemption. He's going to use it for good. But it's not a time for sleeping. They've slept enough to prove that they're not faithful. Verse 46 says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we know that this is not a out of left field thing because he's already been talking about it. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, Judas came. Notice the drama of it. One of the 12 and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of, of the people. I wouldn't mind stressing that last part, the elders of the people. So it's not just the religious bad guys who are the bad actors and all the people of Israel are good. They just have corrupt leaders. No, they're, represent, they're representative. 48 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. 49 says, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Some ancient scholars or scholars of that which is ancient tell us uh, that custom at the time was for the rabbi or the teacher to initiate the embrace and the kiss and here it's the opposite. Judas initiates as a sign, and so they would suggest to us that it's insult to injury. I don't know if that's true or not, but as one scholar put it, it's not only a signal to the mob, but it's also a studied insult. Even if that's not true, this is horrible. Okay, verse 50 says, we'll get this wrapped up. Jesus said to him, friend... Do what you came to do. And that's interesting because Jesus has only ever been a friend to Judas. This in no way, shape, or form is earned because of wronging him. Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus to seize him. 51 says, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we know it's Peter based upon other accounts, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Because Peter was a great aim and he was aiming for his ear. 
Probably not. Probably Malchus was a better ducker than Peter was a stabber. It's probably the idea. Verse 52 says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then, then we're going to have a great theology lesson that's super basic, super ABCs. 53, but it's really good. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Remember who I am. Remember who you're, who you're dealing with. Calm down. Verse 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Sovereignty is alive and well. There is a greater purpose and plan. There is a decree that is following itself out or unfolding. 55 says, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. Like no one else, I'll add. Matthew chapter 7, I think. And you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then here it is, tragically, awfully, sounds like it did earlier. Then all the disciples left him and fled. I don't know about you, but I feel this kind of conflict. I, I, I love this text. I love so much of what's happening here. It's so fascinating. And it's like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. How can I be happy about the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst? I, I guess it's because I know how it ends. And what I, what, what I want to walk away with and encourage you to walk away with, Jesus alone is faithful. Therefore... Trust in Jesus and trust in Jesus alone. Don't trust in yourself and don't trust in the best religious leaders. He and he alone is faithful. And also remember that Jesus and Jesus alone is the sovereign one who's in control. Trust him. Trust him. When he makes promises to believers, you can know that they're true, even if it doesn't look like they're true. And finally, if I can borrow from Hebrews chapter 13, and it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a great, great commentary on our text. They all left him, the greatest of people, all left him, and he's faithful to the very end, and he says to believers, I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the risen Savior. We know that that's what's going to happen. And not only that, we know he's actually going to ascend. He's going to ascend to his throne, to be seated on a throne at your right hand certainly stressing to us and helping us to understand that while we see rulers and authorities, they're not the ultimate rulers and authorities. And we do long for the day, as Matthew 24 and 25 talked about. As believers, we long for the day when Christ returns. Jesus Christ, the righteous, 
the Son of Man where He makes every wrong right. Help us to remember to not try to be Messiahs ourselves and to find our ultimate trust in Him. In His name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.